Psalm chapter 25. Psalm chapter 25. There is a there is one thing <clears throat> that I see a lot in our counseling ministry. And it, it kind of runs underneath as kind of the root of a lot of the issues that we end up doing counseling for. And it doesn't matter whether the person is coming for marriage counseling, abuse counseling, eating disorders, anger issues, anxiety, grief counseling. The theme that seems to always kind of come out at some point or another in the counseling process is the theme of shame. And when you look under things like anger or fear, even guilt, you often find a root of shame that needs to be addressed. And just so that we're clear, um, shame is a deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You, you feel exposed. That's Ed Welch's definition of shame that I, that I appreciate. He says, you are disgraced because you acted less than human. You are treated as if you were less than human. Or you were associated with something less than human. And there are witnesses. Shame says to the person that you are not acceptable. You're a mistake. And eventually, over time, that leads people to start saying to themselves, I'm not acceptable. I am a mistake. And, and shame and guilt are close companions, but they're not identical. And it's important for us to kind of separate those out as we look at this psalm this morning. Shame is more common and broader than the two. In scripture, you'll find themes of shame spoken of through things like nakedness, dishonor, disgrace, and defilement. Those are some biblical words to look for when studying about the topic of shame. And shame occurs in the Bible 10 times more than guilt. The issue of shame is in your Bible 10 times more than the issue of guilt. Guilt lives in the courtroom where you stand alone before the judge. It says you are responsible for wrongdoing and legally you are answerable for the offense. You are wrong. You, you have sinned in some way. The guilty person expects punishment and needs Forgiveness. So if guilt lives in the courtroom, where does shame live? Shame lives in the community, which can oftentimes feel like a courtroom, right? But it's not the courtroom. Shame says that you don't belong. You're unacceptable. You're unclean. You're disgraced. Shame says, I don't fit in in this church. I don't fit in in my small group. That, that's the voice of shame in your heart. Wrong has been maybe done to you. Maybe you're associated with those who are disgraced or an outcast. 
right? Sometimes in your family, you have someone who has done something that socially the world frowns upon. And you're that person's son or you're that person's brother. And so that, that family shame is associated with you. Some, some people I've read said it takes two generations away from such a shameful event before the descendant feels free of the shame of that person, right? So there's this shame by association. I didn't even do anything wrong, but I come from a family of people who have done things wrong. And so it's, it's kind of shame by association, if you will. The shame person feels worthless, expects rejection, and needs cleansing, fellowship, love, and acceptance. Now the question I want to ask before we read this psalm this morning is why would David be worried about being put to shame? That, that's what he's talking about in this passage here. And, and I think David is worried about this for two reasons, maybe more, but at least two that are things that probably are common to all of us in this room. The first is that David knows his own heart. He, he knows the wickedness of his own heart. He knows the sinfulness of his own heart. Sometimes that sinfulness goes out of his heart and is expressed in actions, right? Like killing another man's, uh, another woman's husband so that he can be with that woman, right? But, but sometimes it just lived in his heart and he didn't act on it, but, but, he, but he thought about it and he dwelled on it. He knew how dark his heart was. And David knew, or David thought, when, when God realized what a sinner I've been, what, what a sinner I still am, will he finally see the truth about me and give up on me? This is something that I've heard over and over and over in our counseling ministry. If you knew all the stuff about me, if you knew everything that's happened to me, if you knew everything that I've done, you wouldn't want to sit in the same room with me. Which I patiently, lovingly try to assure them, yes, I would. And the reason is because I know my own wicked heart. And I know I'm no better than you. So the first thing that would make David worry about being put to shame is, is he knows his own heart. And we know his life by going back through the Old Testament and reading it. He was far from perfect. Second, David's enemies hate him with passion. Right? He's reached this point in his political career where he is at the apex. There's nowhere else to go but down. And, and there are people from within, as well as from without, who would love to see nothing more than David fall. And David knows if, if God doesn't stand with me, it's game over. I'm done. Like, I, I can't do this in and of myself. I need God. And if we're honest this morning, those are things we all fear, right? All of us wonder at times, how could God put up with a sinner like me? Will he, will he finally see who I am and just drop me? Just feel like I'm done with you. I give up. 
And now, more than ever, I think, in America, we feel overwhelmed because the world is against us. The, the Bible is very clear all throughout the New Testament that we are exiles, that we are not, you know, living in our own land. And yet in America, we've kind of deceived ourselves and fooled ourselves into thinking we could make heaven on earth. And, and now we're going through a period of time where the government is turning against Christianity. The culture is turning against Christianity, popular opinion is turning against Christianity. And if you are here this morning and you just simply hold to biblical truths, you are now being labeled as intolerant and a bigot just by believing what the Bible says. And so for the first time, maybe for some of you in your lifetimes, you're experiencing some level of persecution. Again, it doesn't rise anywhere near the level of what's happening around the world, but we're no longer the place to be. We're no longer the group to be with. In addition, we have an enemy, the devil, who just wants to destroy us. He's, he's roaming around just looking for every opportunity to rip us apart. Sowing disunity in the body like crazy. If there is an issue we can fight about, I promise you he will have us fighting about it. All the while thinking we are morally right and doing what God wants us to do as we fight about it. On both sides. And the devil's just sitting back laughing. God, they're so busy fighting with each other about these stupid things. They're not sharing the gospel. They're not on mission. They're not talking about Jesus anymore. We have a real enemy. And so like David, we, we know our own sin well, and, and we, we know our heart better than anyone else in this room. Even your spouse doesn't really know how wicked your heart is. Only you do, apart from God. And so when you're honest and, and you really look at your heart and your life, there are these times when you wonder, is, is God even going to, is he going to put up with me? And then second, there are people that want to take you down. And you know, like David, if, if God turns away from us, it's came over for us too. Psalm 25 teaches us what it means to wait for hope, or excuse me, to wait for God and to hope in Him. But when you're fearing and you're worried about being put to shame, this psalm comes alongside of you and, and it helps you to understand what does it look like to wait for God. It's one thing to put your faith and trust in God. That's, that's the first step of salvation. But you don't just instantly get transported to heaven, right? You're still here. What happens next? That's what this psalm is about. How do we wait for God in the, in the meantime? Now, Psalm 25 is a teaching psalm, meaning it's in the form of an acrostic. And, and every, with a few variations, each line starts with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So this would have made it easy for a, a Hebrew child to memorize this psalm just going through the Hebrew alphabet. And it makes for good poetry. Like I say, it makes it easy to memorize, provided you know Hebrew. But even if you speak English, <clears throat> this psalm has a lot we can learn this morning. 
about how we can set our confidence in God. And I want to look this morning at how David waits for God in this passage. And therefore, how do we wait for God? How do we trust him with patience and complete confidence? So this morning, I want to kind of, we're going to read the psalm together. But I want to focus on four aspects. And if you're taking notes, this, this is kind of the four big headings that we're going to look at today. Of what it looks like to wait on God. And, and these four things serve as a defense against that feeling of shame that we all carry in our lives. And the four aspects that we see in Psalm 25 are obedience, confession, fear, and prayer. Obedience, confession, fear, and prayer. So with that in the back of your mind, let's read Psalm 25 together as a church, starting in verse 1. Read it with me, guys. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, None who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to the steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. For those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. Those, the friendship of the Lord is the, for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes. And with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not put shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles. Amen. Did a good job. That was a really long psalm this morning, so proud of y'all. Um, in verses 1 through 3, David starts out this psalm just by entrusting himself to God. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In other words, 
To you I am giving my soul. I am entrusting my soul to you. Oh my God, verse 2, in you I trust. Let me be not put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Asking God to not put him to shame and to, to deliver him from his enemies is David's goal in this psalm. But then David makes this statement in verse 3. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. And that's what I want to focus on. Who wait for you? None who wait. Because I don't want to be put to shame. Do you, do you want to be put to shame? I, I don't think any of us really want to be ever put to shame, right? And so David is telling us, indeed, no one who wait for you shall be put to shame. So what does it look like then for us to wait for the Lord. Well, the first thing that we see in verses 4 through 5 as David is teaching us what it looks like to wait in the Lord is obedience. We see that in verses 4 through 5. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceit, or excuse me, woo, wrong place. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. The, the first step that David has in waiting for the Lord for us in this passage is asking God to teach him. God has to show us how to obey him. If you notice the, the verbs that David used, make me to know, teach me, lead me. Now, why do we need God to teach us how to obey? I mean, we live in a time that says, well, just let your conscience be your guide. Just, just follow your heart, right? Well, why can't we as Christians do that? Well, because we know the contents of our hearts. We, we know that the fall affected every aspect of our life. It affected our hearts, but it, it also affected our minds. We cannot think clearly. I was just talking about this with some people this, this week, that because of the fall, I don't know if you guys realize this, but none of us in this room, including myself, can perceive reality correctly. Like the fall even affected how we perceive the world. Think about that for a second. You, you walk out of here and you think, I know what's going on. I know what Dale said. But the reality is, the fallenness of our brains affects the way we perceive everything. You, you all have previous experiences and previous thoughts and previous sins that every bit of reality is filtered through. Because we are fallen. And our hearts are fallen. And every chance our hearts will get, they will deceive us. The Bible says, for, for, the, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. That's why David is saying, teach me, Lord. David realizes his fallenness. David realizes the limitation of his brain, and he doesn't think he can ascend the holy hill all by himself. 
he realizes he needs a guide. He needs a teacher. Now, for those of us who are living in the New Testament, we have that teacher. His name is the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you realize this or not, but one of his job descriptions for the Holy Spirit is to be the teacher. God placed a portion of himself, his spirit inside of you to lead you into all truth. Now, that's not your heart and that's not your conscience. That's something totally apart from your heart and conscience. And the way you can tell the difference is one typically leads to self-denial, the other leads to self-fulfillment. When you start thinking, oh, this is what God wants for me, and it includes you know, a giant house and all this stuff, it's like, oh, that might not be the Holy Spirit leading you, buddy. Right? But, but you know it's the Holy Spirit when he says, give up doing what you want to do and sacrifice for your neighbor. Love your neighbor. I know you had plans this Saturday, but go help your neighbor. Right? We know that's not us because <laughs> we don't want to do that. We want to do our Saturday plans, not go help our neighbor. That's, that's one of the ways that we know that the Holy Spirit is leading us and is teaching us. If we think we can figure out the right path on our own, that we don't understand our own sinfulness. And if we want to follow God and please Him, the place to begin is to ask Him, what do you want? What, what do you expect of me? See, a proud man assumes that he knows what God wants. He doesn't even ask. I know what God wants, I'm just going to go do it. But a, but a humble man or woman comes to the Lord and says, Lord, teach me. Teach me. See, th those are two different ways of approaching your Bible. You, you can come to the Bible and listen, this is, this is hard. Well, it's harder the longer you're a Christian. Because the more you know and the more you think you know, the less you ask God to show you things and to help you. Because I already know that, right? It's especially dangerous for somebody like me. I'll take a class on that. I got an A. I don't need to ask God to help me with this. I got this. But the reality is, each and every one of us need to go to God's Word and ask Him, teach me, show me, help me. I can't do this on my own. And the longer you've been in church, maybe, maybe the, you know, you've been in here for a long time, it's easy to assume that you know what God wants you to do. The way I hear that sometimes in church is when we talk about, well, what does God want you to do? Well, he just wants me to read my Bible and pray. Okay, well, that's like, you know, it's like, you know, the first step. And it's a step we need to keep taking. But there's more to this Christian life than just going home and reading your Bible and praying. That, that whole love your neighbor thing, that, that's a big part of the New Testament and what Jesus taught. 
And I understand that's complicated and it's messy and it's not as clear cut as I read my chapter a day and I pray for 15 minutes and I've checked off my list. Ooh, I'm good. But God wants us to be obedient to him, which means following the life of Jesus Christ. Where did Jesus go? Did he go to the country clubs and just hang out with the cool kids? No, he, he went to the outcast. He, he said, look, I, I'm a physician. I'm here for the sick, not the well. Following Jesus, being obedient to Jesus starts and continues with reading your Bible because that is what directs you and guides you. But it should be working out into a life of obedience in your life of serving others because that's what Jesus did with his whole life. Even his death was a service to others. God teaches us through his word, the Bible. Jesus prayed, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth in John 17, 17. The man or woman who wants to obey God wants to understand the Bible so that we can follow it and live by truth. Not just so that we can have the score of knowledge and be able to answer Bible trivia questions. Like, it should change the way you live your life. It should change the way you interact with your family, your co-workers, your neighbors, your little neighbors, as well as all the other people you come to contact about the day. It should be transforming you and changing you. And we can't understand God's word on our own. We need God to lead us and teach us. Otherwise, again, we just end up with a big store of knowledge. Again, the, the, the prideful man assumes he knows what God wants. And he gathers all this information and he knows all the right answers. And he's happy to tell anybody what the right answer is. But he's not going to sacrifice his time. He's not, not going to sacrifice his finances to do what the word teaches him to do. But that's what God is calling us to is a, a life of obedience. It's not just learning about it. We, we start there. We understand it. But then we apply it in our lives and we follow him. Jesus himself taught us this importance of obedience in the Christian life in Luke 6. 46 through 49, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do and not do what I tell you? In other words, I don't care all the stuff you know. Go do it. Share the gospel with other people. Disciple other people. I don't care if you could write a book about those subjects. If you're not doing it, who are you? Everyone who comes to me, Luke says, and hears my words, and does them. Again, Jesus is repeating himself. You should pay attention when he repeats himself. I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. That's the difference between knowing what you need to know and actually doing 
what you need to do. And that's why so many of you have probably experienced what I have experienced. That the level of maturity of a Christian is not exposed until they're asked to do something they don't want to do. And at that point, it's like, well, I'm done. I'll find another church. Someone asked me to do that. I'll go somewhere else. I can just sit there and rebuild this little house on sand. We are to be obedient. David is calling us to be obedient. Following his paths for our lives. The second thing we see in this passage, the second aspect of waiting on God, it's, it's first to be obedient to God, letting him teach us. But second, there is, there is confession. It's not enough to just confess our lives to obey God, right? Even, even if today you said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change and I'm just going to follow and do everything God wants me to do. You still have a lifetime of sin to deal with up until this point. And God knows what you have done. But God also knows what you're going to do. He, he knows that you're going to stumble again in the future. As hard as you try to be obedient, he knows you're going to stumble along the path. And so David asks humbly for forgiveness. Which is what we should do as Christians when we stumble along the path. Because listen guys, you're going to stumble you should be so thankful that God built into the plan of salvation a way to deal with the stumbling. He's not calling and expecting perfect people. He's looking for obedient people that are willing to confess and repent when they fail and make mistakes. As David confesses his sin, he asks for grace. He asked both God to remember something and to forget something. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. That's what I want you to remember. When you see me, remember that. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness. Notice how David first starts with God's character. His, his appeal is not to his goodness, but to God's goodness, right? His focus is on God's character, and he's asking God to remember how good you are. God, remember how good you are? Remember that? All right, I want you to think about that when you look at me. The word mercy is, is related here to the Hebrew word for womb. And this mercy is the the gentle compassion that a mother has for a baby. God cares for his people with a tender, motherly type love. In Isaiah 49, 15, it says, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget But David also wants God to remember his commitment to his people. When he, when he uses that word steadfast love that we've seen in so many of the other Psalms, 
That's God's committed love. That's God's covenant loyalty to his people. And so if mercy is pointing to a mother's love for her child, then steadfast love is to a husband's love for his wife. It's, it's a covenant love. When a husband vows to love his wife until death do us part. This is a picture of steadfast love, the steadfast love that God has for his people. God has committed himself by a covenant to his people as husband and bride. And by asking God to remember this, David is, is asking God to remember the wedding vows that he made to his people when he first called them and chose them to be his very own. So David wants God to remember these things. But he also wants God to forget some things. Which I don't know if you've ever thought about it. But for God to forget something is an active process. See, for you and I, especially the older I get, it's a passive process. Right? Like, it's getting real easy to forget things. I mean, I, I used to literally, for the first 10 years of counseling, I kept all of my notes in my head. And I could keep up with all the details of all these different people. And as soon as they sat down, it was like, boom, there it was. Now I have an iPad and I take notes. Because I can't remember from week to week. Right? And I don't want these people to have to repeat things. So I, I, I have to take notes. My, my brain is just not... But, but that's not active. I'm not actively getting up at the end of the session going purge, delete, you know. But for God, who is all-knowing, forgetting is an active choice that he has to make. And that's what David is asking him to do. God, get up and make the active choice to forget the sins of my youth. These could have been the sins that David struggled with. From the time he was a small child, I've talked to countless men and women who were exposed to pornography by a friend in school. And, and this sin of their childhood, this sin of their youth, has been a battle for them ever since. For so many people, the shame that has accompanied their sin has damaged relationships with the opposite sex. For some, it's even cost them their marriages in later life because of this sin of their youth. It could also be the things that David did between childhood and adulthood, right? Those, those years, all those choices and decisions you made from, say, like 15 to 25. As I talk to most people, most of the choices that they regret kind of occur in that period of time for most people, right? And I'm so thankful, um, you know, because many of us, we, we, you know, we blush. I'm, I'm getting some smiles on your faces. I'm trying not to look in, your, in the eyes, right? Like, you remember some of those things you did, right? And I'm so thankful I grew up in a time when there were no video cameras. Young people, I feel real sorry for y'all. Because, I mean, I, listen, I know God loves me because I, I used to go out with a group of my friends and, and we used to do some stupid stuff. And, and, and like, 
let, let me define stupid for you. This is why I trust God with my children because he got me through this. We, we would go into the middle of a field and take a bow and arrow and shoot the bow and arrow straight up in the air and then run, hoping that it didn't hit us. We, we would go dove hunting and get bored because there were no dove and try to shoot each other. I probably shot more people than I've ever shot birds. Like, I've done some stupid stuff. And thankfully, there was no video cameras around. But, but in this technological age that we live in now, it follows you. You can be going for a job when you're 35 and some dumb tweet you made when you were 16 can cost you the job because there's a record of it. Your sin can follow you in multiple ways now that it used to couldn't. It just kind of went away. You, you made that dumb comment and, you know, it's gone. But now everything is recorded. And many of us who are, who are older would like nothing more than to have the sins of our youth left in the past. We, we wish... I talk to people all the time and they'd say, and I just wish I could go back and just like erase just a couple of days. If I could just get rid of a couple of days in my life, oh, that would make me feel so much better. So I bet you understand exactly what David is feeling in this psalm this morning, right? He, he's sitting there thinking about all the stupid things he did. All, all the dumb things, all the sinful things. And he doesn't want God to focus on those things. We need the grace of God's forgetfulness. Which again is an active process that God does for us. If we are Christians, we have received this kind of grace. And for those of us getting older, this, this is a great verse for us to memorize. I would encourage you to, to put this on your list of verses to memorize. Because sometimes when you get closer to the end of your life, I've noticed this pattern with people is they tend to focus on all their mistakes and regrets. Like for whatever reason, that, that just kind of starts to haunt them the later in life they get. And they think about all the missed opportunities and the, and the choices that they made that cause rifts in the family or, or caused a, a, a divorce or some kind of thing. And, and they're just sitting there and they're just kind of plagued by those thoughts. And you memorizing this verse will give your brain some ammunition to fight back against those dark thoughts. Some of you who are younger people and you're here this morning, you should memorize this verse too because for some of you, you have committed more sin in your short lifetime than some people have committed in their whole lifetime. And so you need this verse as ammunition to be able to speak truth to that accuser, right? We, we have an enemy. We talked about that in the beginning. And he is the great accuser. He's the one that says you're never going to be good enough because you remember what you did in grade school? Remember what you did in high school? You can't do that. You can't share the gospel with that person. You can't disciple that person because you've done all these things. This is a great verse for you to have to be able to speak truth to that enemy. 
That verse is for you too. The third thing we see in this psalm, David begins to feel this grace so deeply that he stops his prayer and he turns to teach us. In verses 8 through 10, David stops his prayer and there's a shift. He's no longer talking to God. He's talking about God. He's trying to instruct us and teach us in something. God, or excuse me, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimony. God teaches sinners who admit their sin to listen to him. God humbles himself to be an instructor. Think about that for a second. He's humbling himself to teach you. He doesn't have to do that. He's the God of the universe. He He doesn't have to spend a moment with you. And yet David says, when we are humble, when we confess our sins, that he instructs us. Since we are sinners, he he would be just completely justified in wiping us off the face of the earth. He'd be completely justified to condemn us for all of eternity. But since he's good, since he's upright, he teaches men and women who humble themselves to listen to him. And this morning, that means there's hope for you and me. If you're not a believer, you might have met Christians who wanted nothing to do with you because they were good people. And because they were good people, they didn't want to be around you because you might make them not good people. Right? You you might in some way corrupt them. And so they separated themselves and they distanced themselves from you because they didn't want to be around you or your family. And maybe you come here this morning and you think that's how God is. Since, he, since he's so good, he, he won't touch me. He won't get near me because I'm so bad. But David says just the opposite. God welcomes sinners and he teaches them precisely because he is good. The Bible says that Jesus looks for the best in you. Isaiah 42, 3, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. God is so good that he reclaims sinful men and women like you and me. And he makes us into what we should be. If we will listen to God's voice and follow him, he will teach us. And then in verse 11, David asks for forgiveness. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is He's not satisfied to just ask God to forget his sins. He wants the slate to be wiped clean. He he wants a full pardon. He wants all charges set aside. Now, our tendency is to minimize our sin and make light of it. 
You, you might have experienced this in a small group. Somebody starts to confess their sin, and somebody makes the cardinal mistake of saying, well, that's not that bad. You're minimizing the sin. Let the person confess. If they've gotten to the place of confession and talking about their sin, don't minimize it because it makes you uncomfortable because that's the reality of what's going on in that scenario. This person is confessing and you're realizing all the things you're not confessing and so you want to minimize it so that you don't have to deal with your own sin. We like to minimize our sin and not talk about it. But David, David is honest, for it is great, he says. It is massive. If we were writing verse 11, we would want to say something like, Oh Lord, you know, please pardon my sin, the few that I have. They're small. They're not that big. But David doesn't plead for the smallness of his sins. He, he pleads for pardon and pardon because he knows how great they are. He knows how much he has sinned. And he knows his situation is so desperate that nothing less than a full pardon will do. If you're feeling the weight of your sin, you're in a good place. Right where David is. And you can call out just like David in the morning and you say, pardon my guilt for it is great. How can God pardon great sin? The reason he can forget sins and forgive great guilt and sin is because Jesus died and rose again to save sinners. If your sin is like a backpack of guilt and shame that you're carrying around with you this morning, just imagine Jesus taking that back from your shoulders and carrying it with him to the cross. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live righteousness. His wounds, we have been healed. Hear this clearly this morning. If you're a Christian and you're minimizing your sin, you're minimizing Jesus' work on the cross. If you're minimizing your sin, you're minimizing his work the greater the guilt, the greater my guilt, the greater your guilt, the greater the forgiveness and the greater glory of Jesus who won that forgiveness for you. Christ is willing to forgive the greatest sinners because that's how he receives the greatest glory. Since he died to save sinners, he welcomes the absolute worst. He's not a savior for those who can handle you know, their sin and, and only have these small sins. His blood is, is powerful enough to cover the greatest of sinners. And this this morning should be a huge comfort to you. If you're worried that God will somehow finally realize all the stuff you've done and leave you standing at the altar, As he, as he turns and he looks to you and he sees you face to face on that wedding day and he just goes, ah, too much, too much sin. This, this should bring you great comfort this morning. He forgives the sins of our youth. We are great sinners, but he is a great Savior. His grace is greater than all of our sins. And when we wait on God and put our trust in him, we should wait in confession 
We should be constantly confessing our sin to him and constantly finding forgiveness from that guilt and shame. The third thing that we see in this passage is the fear of God, or or maybe a better way to say this is the awe of God. We see this in verse 12 through 15. Awe of the Lord brings great blessing. After asking for God's forgiveness, David turns to us again and he starts teaching us. The fear of the Lord might not be what you expect for him to go to. um, Because again, many Christians confuse this with literal fear of God. As as if God is someone to run from and hide from in terror. And and the English word, unfortunately, it it, it doesn't capture the full biblical meaning when it's used in the expression fear of the Lord. Because all we think about is being scared. But the context of just these few verses, I think, will help you see the fuller meaning of what fear of the Lord looks like. It, it doesn't mean this, like, reverence. I have to avert my eyes from him, and I can't, you know, like, get in his presence because he's so holy and not holy. Again, remember, your sinful presence in his holiness does not diminish his holiness. Right? God, that's not how it works. And, and so, in this passage, notice what David says in verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. God is promising to those who fear him, for those who are in awe of him. Why are they in awe of him? Because they have, he has forgiven the sins of their youth. He has pardoned them. He has set aside their guilt. He has allowed them to have a, a relationship with him, and now there is a friendship So this fear isn't terror, ah, i got to run away. No, it is running to him. In in the same way, when when life goes bad and you have a bad day at work, what do you do? You reach out and you call your best friend. Or you call one of your good friends, right? You run to them when things are bad. But you also run to them when things are good, right? You want to celebrate? you got a promotion? Who do you tell first? Your friends, right? For those of you who are married, hopefully that's your spouse. Hopefully they're your best friend. And you can't wait to tell them the good news or the bad news. And that's a picture of what David is saying here in this passage. Friends enjoy each other's company. Friendship is close, personal knowledge. It's one thing for God to teach us which path to take. Listen, that in and of itself is a blessing. That in and of itself would be enough for a a holy, just God as he is to do. And yet David claims something amazing that God offers you friendship some of us shudder whenever we sing worship songs that speak of our relationship of God in in intimacy because we just think it should be this fear and this reverence like oh my gosh I gotta I gotta keep my distance that's not what the Bible teaches that's not the goal of Christianity He's calling you into a relationship with him. He's calling you into a friendship with him. You can be a friend of God. Friendship is close. It is intimate. It is personal. God opens his heart to those who fear him and shares his plans and purposes. Do you fear the Lord this morning? 
This blessing is yours in Christ. Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I call you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. The Apostle Paul also helps us understand the Christian relationship with fear. In Romans 8.15, the Apostle Paul encouraged the Romans by informing them that in their conversion to Christ, they received the Holy Spirit, not as a spirit of fear and of bondage, but a spirit of adoption, whereby they could address God as Abba. The Aramaic word commonly used by Jewish children to address their, their fathers, right? This fear, this awe of the Lord is bringing you into a friendship, into a relationship with God. The, the fear of the Lord transforms our relationship with God. And, it, and it's not one of terror, but one that leads into a deeper, intimate relationship with Him. The final thing we see in this psalm as we close is prayer. And we see this in verses 16 through 22. Notice that David says, we wait in prayer. And he, he turns and he lists these seven specific prayers. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. How many of you are here this morning, you feel lonely and afflicted? David says, pray to God. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Will God hear this prayer that David is lifting up to him? Or, or will God leave him stuck at the altar, walking away? Well, David's already answered that question in verse 3. In verse 3, he says, no, None who wait for you shall be put to shame. God hears the prayers of his people, and he will answer us. And in case we think that confidence is just for David, like maybe some of you are going, yeah, this, is, this psalm's all about David. It's just for him. Notice the way the psalm ends, verse 22. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. This, line, this last line opens up this psalm to make it a prayer for all of us who know Christ. We will never know the humiliation of being abandoned and rejected by God. God did redeem Israel. By sending Jesus. And nothing can separate us from him. If we trust in him, we will never be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this psalm. Thank you for reminding us that no matter how much we've sinned, there is always hope. This morning, Lord, as we think about our lives, or maybe we're at a place where we need to just be obedient. We need to follow you and to just do what your word says. 
Maybe for some of us this morning, we, we need to confess. Maybe for the first time or for the 1,000th time, we need to confess our sin to you and ask you to pardon our sin. And Lord, maybe for some that are here, we've lost our awe of God, or maybe we never had it because we misunderstood this fear of the Lord. And this fear of the Lord separated us from you rather than drawing us closer into a relationship with you. Lord, would you renew our awe this morning? And Lord, help us to pray. Help us to call out to you in our times of trouble, but also in our times of joy. And to grow closer with you in our relationship as we wait these things in Jesus' name. Amen.